doesn't have anything to do with this. You're still an abomination for liking Coleslaw. No, you are. House of Bards. Um, this is the QCon 2016 podcast. Yeah, this have... is post QCon. Tw- uh, uh, yeah, post QCon 23 report. Yeah. Right. And yeah. Uh, this is a very, very exciting podcast where over a year after our first episode, we've uh, broken new ground because this is the first time that we're going to have a guest on the podcast. Uh, we mentioned her quite a lot last week. It's Maxie. Hi. Who is uh, still in Belfast after QCon, so we thought, hey, you, you, you ran a, a game over QCon that was actually kind of more interesting than mine, so why don't we, we get you on the podcast? And I was like, um, oh, okay then, I have to write everything up then that I've done. Because she's new and not yet jaded <laughs> and just like winging it or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I used to be so concerned about making notes. Now I just end every podcast in completely blind. We don't even decide what we're talking about until like five minutes before we record. Yeah, that's that's the way. Like, I will go and look at the Wikipedia page for a like class felt for its history. If we're gonna do class studies, but other than that, it's like fuck it. Yeah, I'm just gonna like talk out of our ass for two hours <laughs> and then I'll cut it down to an hour. Yeah. That's why we go off topic so often. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely the way. So yeah, um, met some of you, many of you, in fact, because as far as I know, it is actually our most popular episode, uh, which is a sort of source of great embarrassment and irritation to me because it's nothing like the rest of the episodes. Uh, are, are very fond of episode three of this podcast, which was called the QCon Twenty Two Experiment, uh, and it's it's uh, just just gone. It's been that time of year again. It was the uh, it's the twenty second of June now. While we're recording, and it's Wednesday, so it would have been when was Seventeenth. It's the seventeenth to the nineteenth. Okay, seventeenth seventeenth to the nineteenth of June uh, at Queen's University Belfast. Um, and yeah, it was good. It was fun. Yeah, uh, I, I I had a good time. Um, I ran more games than I did last year because I ran uh, another three games as part of another experiment. And also, I ran Traveller once. Mm-hmm. Just a, a you know, normal scenario written by somebody else. Uh, I changed around some of the bits to divorce it from its context, just so it would be a you know a normal fun Traveller romp. Um, there's not actually that much to say about that one. I had four people in it, uh, which was great because uh, I wanted to include character creation, but I didn't actually make like pre-gens up to the beginning of that. Uh, but then I turned up and I found that I had instituted a limit of four people on that game, which means that past Alex is significantly more intelligent than present Alex in all respects. Uh, I was I was glad that that had happened. So I tried, guys. I really, really tried to think of some way of topping the experiment from last year. But when you start with organizing literal time travel, it's kind of difficult to know where to go next. So the theme of the experiment this year was past, present, future. Uh, And I decided that the way it worked was uh, the first group were going to build the dungeon. And the second group were going to hide loot around the dungeon. 
and then the third group could come in and run the dungeon like a normal dungeon crawl. And I thought that that would be interesting, and indeed it was. Uh, it, it was a very uh, it was a reasonably uh, big success, the, uh, the experiment this year. Um, so I, I called it uh, the Magnian Vault Trilogy, the idea being that it would be centered around a, a dwarf uh, a dwarven vault in the in in well cut into Mount Magnia, and that would be that would be the thing. So um, the first group would be like thousands of years before the uh, the, the current dawn song for continuity. Um, a queen would commission you know a vault where the riches of, of the dwarf kingdom could be stored, and, and they would have to to build it. And they would they would come come across a, a trouble along the way. Um, but something that I found very interesting with with that was I hadn't expected my players to have such enthusiasm for the uh, collective architecture. Like, you know, the, the whole, like, like you guys need to, to work together to, to, like, come up with a design for for this dungeon thing. I thought that would be kind of, like... Like, I didn't expect it to be boring to them, but I, I, I thought it would be something that they would find kind of weird and that they wouldn't really take to, uh, and that they'd just sort of, like, you know come up with some reasonably workable ideas for some rooms and leave it at that. But it, it seemed like they, they were actually like really, really into that. Um, and they, they even like went as far as thinking about the, uh, the superficial like aspects of their characters and what their characters would think was like good, um, being a good architect. Um, it was funny because I, I gave them five objectives. I, I said, you have to complete any three of these objectives and you can, if you wish, complete all five of them. So it was, uh, there needed to be a big hall where uh, dwarf lords could have like statues erected of them and have their uh, masterworks displayed. There needed to be a big state vault room that was just like a pile of money like you might see Scrooge McDuck dive into. Uh, there needed to be a throne room where there would be like a big, big throne. Uh, there needed to be a library where valuable books could be stored. And there needed to be eight personal vaults for rich families in the uh, like in, in the kingdom. And uh, one of the players who was playing a barbarian decided that they were going to do the first three because, uh, quote-unquote, books are for nerds and fuck the bourgeoisie. <laughs> so so that, that was that then. They, they, they built the first three and they left the other ones alone, um, especially after having... Uh, encountered some mummies while digging uh, into the, the rock face and having to, to deal with those mummies who had been entombed there in a, in a box. Um, and so, like, when the, the, the second group, I was like, okay, um, this is, like, a very exciting historical time. This is uh, the the final days of the old dwarf uh, kingdom. The, the king has been corrupted. He's turned cruel and evil, and he's oppressing his citizens. Um Yashvaram, the uh, the baby-faced dwarf lord, has broken away from the king uh, and openly defied the the monarchy, and is taking his his big train of dwarvish and human refugees to the east to found a new country. Um, so what you have to do is your agents of Yashvaram, and you have to go to the vault at Mount Magnia, take it over, hide uh, a bunch of treasure in it, and then defend it from the forces of the king. And like they were they were. Uh, they were pretty interesting as well, actually, because I, um, they talked their way out of two consecutive uh, confrontations before they actually had to see combat, uh, which I was not expecting them to do at all. Like, the uh, the first co- confrontation is three 
dragonborn bandits appear. And, like, within the context of, like, the canon at this point, like, dragonborn have only existed for roughly 200 years. Um, and they don't really have much of a claim to land of their own. So they're very, very protected of their territory and their mountains. And they're like, you're trespassing. Um, you're too close to, to our tribal like village. There's there's no like dwarf lands up here. You need to, to turn around and go or we're going to kill you. And they, they managed to talk to... They used the sorcerer uh, a spell to make the leader like them. And they managed to, uh, to resolve, resolve that one non-violently. Um, and then when they got to the to the vault, they broke through the first two doors, and then when they opened the third one, there's this, this really angry dwarf who's like, who are you, and, and why are you trying to get in? And they're like, oh, uh, we're your relief. And because of, of like their shared high charisma, this actually worked. They managed to convince the group of dwarves who were guarding the vault that this ragtag band of ununiformed dwarves, half-elves, and humans was their relief and it was just like it couldn't all be dwarves because of like bureaucracy and cutbacks and whatever <laughs> and they're just like um, oh those migrants stealing those dwarf jobs they're just like this saying is, this is why we should leave the um humanoid alliance in the referendum <laughs> but yeah they 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 managed to just convince them to to leave and um, without really arousing too much suspicion uh and like obviously, those guys turned around once they found like the uh, the contingent of the the royal army that was coming and was like, "No, you fools! <laughs> what did what did you do?" Uh, but then they they set to work hiding. Um, what were they given? They were given uh, Queen Ashsar's crown, um, Cassius Skybook, which is a dwarf lord artifact I use a lot in my games. Um, it, it's a it's a book that accurately mathematically details the movements of the stars for I think 400 years after Cassia died and can be used to derive the movements of the stars thereafter um, just because like um, I, I it, it becomes like an important plot point at certain times during the the, the main um, continuity but I wanted to show that like the dwarves were interested in crafts beyond like just making big hammers and suits of armor and whatever yeah that like Cassia's masterwork, like it's a it's a really well made book and it's really well bound and it will last a long time. But the reason why it's valuable is because the information contained within is completely mathematically accurate. And um, there was a staff which was some other dwarf lord that I've mentioned before. Like it long it was the the masterwork of that dwarf lord. There was also a huge amount of gold and some diamonds the size of your fist. I think there were five of them they had to hide. And they got really creative with how they were hiding some of these. I think the the book ended up inside a hole cut in another larger book in the library, which is not too silly. Um, the money ended up just in the uh, the Ash family vault. The crown was stuffed into the uh, concentric roll of a rolled up carpet. Uh, the staff and the diamonds were actually... Uh, Put inside granite statues in the entrance hall because, like the uh, like, the, I think it was the cleric who used. Um... You said meld stone. When yeah, you me- 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 meld through stone, and you just like push yourself in. And I ruled that like you can put stuff inside these statues, but the displaced material will make the rest of the statue denser. Mm. So if you make the statue too dense, it will just sort of explode. Basically, it will like uh, crumble to dust because it will be compressed too much. So they 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 spread the stuff around the statues. Um, but you would have to break the statues in order to get them out. Or at the very least, meld through stone again. 
which I thought was really clever. And then they defended the uh, the vault against uh, thirty dwarves and a stone giant, and it was quite brutal actually. The uh, the sorcerer uh, burned an entire contingent of dwarves alive. It was uh, it was pretty horrible. And then I was just like, okay, they're they're all dead, so I guess you you succeeded. Uh, and that's where Maxi's group comes in because they were the third group. Yeah. Uh, and they're just going to like run this as a normal dungeon because this is like hundreds of years later when the because uh, the the vault was basically abandoned after the second game so like it's still got like all the doors smashed in from where the the stone giant has just been like smashing like through the the vault doors and it's kind of it's full of like you know skeletons and stuff like that so uh, you guys came to like the through the front door. Mm-hmm. And where, like, all of those those dwarves were incinerated, what what did you find? Um, we found a flaming skull that um, leapt up and started cackling at us, and so we immediately went into combat with the with the skull, took it out. It took a lot of our hit points down, and uh, we smashed it to pieces. And then, um, on some checks, we realized that. Uh, given enough time, the skull would reform. So we got two bags. We put the bone fragments and divided them between the bags and threw them in different directions off the mountain before go- continuing on inside. That was, that's fucking brutal. <laughs> it's a good idea, though. It um, is, but like brutal. The, those of you who've listened to a, a Halloween episode will probably remember us talking about the Flame Skull, and like you do have to deal with those guys, because it's like, dispel magic or remove curse you have to have in order to get rid of them for good. So, lacking either of those options, I thought their their idea was uh, pretty decent. It would take that skull a while to put itself back together. Crawl up that mountain, you bitch. <laughs> I like the idea of it attempting to reform itself together, but the two bags are sandwiched between it. Hmm. That would be funny, actually, if like it's two two bags like flying in the air, yeah. and it's just like got as close as it can get. So there's this like imprint of like a skull inside the bag going. <laughs> Although to be honest, if it were able to get close enough to reform itself, it would probably just like go on fire and burn through the bags. Yeah, yeah. So maybe it would like have like. Um, seams in it and the seams would have like fragments of burnt hessian in them yeah that'd be funny actually it wouldn't be funny it would be fucking terrifying <laughs> yeah it's still a skull on fire yeah but um it, it was gonna allow us to um do what we needed to instead of only giving us a half an hour or an hour before it reformed uh, i think it's, it's within an hour yeah within an hour um so then uh, they, they go into this, this entrance hall where they find the, uh, the granite statues. And, and, and by the way, the, uh, the, this, all the way through here, the, these statues have been made out of the granite that came from the granite box containing the mummies that was found in the first adventure. Um, and these, these mummies were imprisoned in this granite box because they were um, cultists. They were servants of Ataramaxu, the demon who's locked in a pocket dimension but wants to come out and you know, genocide all the living races of the world and turn them into his undead thralls so that he can make war on Skedren and Tanitha and become the leader of all demons and devils and also the god of death. So he has a cult, but not a lot of people like him. And in this case, uh, these mummies were considered so dangerous that elves decided to lock them up in a box inside a mountain. And then because there was no way out of the box, there was this sort of dish in the middle of the uh, of the original box that was where those... Uh, 
those final elves who did the uh, the you know finished the ceiling just went and blew themselves up completely so that their bodies couldn't be used by the uh, the, the mummies to you know swell their ranks. Uh, so yeah, actually, um, players in that first game were subjected to my extremely limited and uh, you know moderately uh, carefully researched uh, attempts at terse Latin phrases. Because um, I think I mentioned before that, that Elvish in, in my world is based on Latin, yeah. and I wanted it to be that these these elves, these these mummies, were so old that they only knew Elvish. So, like they uh, they said, I don't know the, the, the word. The one I can remember is uh, "tibies dissimilabile," which is the closest <laughs> that I could get to something that one might say to announce an intent to, um, like make a victim like like one of the set themselves because that was their thing is like they touch you and then you slowly start turning into uh, yeah. a mummy but not yeah. like a bandages mummy it's more that you just sort of like dry out and dehydrate uh, until you become like a, a walking corpse and tibias dissimilabile literally means you will be or can be assimilated because that was the phrase that I found that like when you pass it through Google Translate like and then you pass it back again there's the least amount of like um, what's the word? Uh, uh, like it, it, it was the least lossy translation. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like the, the meaning was retained. It was like the the, the can will um, distinction. I was like, I vaguely remember that like Latin has some weird problems with that kind of construction. Mm. So I, I wasn't gonna really let that bother me. Because um, this is the things like I I don't know any Latin myself, but like. <laughs> through my like uh, travails through like weird aspects of literature i've come to like collect a lot of completely useless uh knowledge about like vague rules and, and stuff that latin has problem with problems with um it's like on the edge of my head so i was like yeah, it, it's fine yeah don't, and don't worry about it. <laughs> i who have studied uh latin for three years probably know even less than you <laughs> But uh, no, it's it, it, that was that was um, fun. But then I was like, okay, so these statues are always evil because they're basically like stained with the evil of the uh, the uh, the mummies, like having seeped into the stone. So they make everyone who goes near them and like tries to stone sense them, which happened a lot because a lot of the player characters were dwarves, like really uncomfortable, <laughs> which was very funny. Um, but, uh, you guys didn't get very far though, did you? You like went into the yeah. In this room, and you looked around for like stuff to to loot. And that was when the bagpipes came in. Yes, there was, <laughs> was a necklace, and oh, I, I'm gonna have to explain the bagpipes joke. So we mentioned Matt as well last week, and this like I built this with Matt in mind, but I think it's it's a it's a thing that comes up quite a lot for any player is if you have a reasonably high magic setting, your players will want to go to magic shops get magical items and, and a lot of the time when they do such things they accept that such items will probably be very expensive because like obviously you have to balance the way that magic works in your system somehow but they want to go and they want to browse and i'm like matt can you please stop doing this because because like making up magical items on the fly is actually reasonably difficult <laughs> especially like balanced ones that won't like wreck the uh the, the, the game See, this is why I just strand you out in the middle of the wilderness half the time. Yeah. <laughs> there aren't any fucking magic shops in the mountains, bitches. 
Um, but what I ended up doing is, uh, if you look in the Dungeon Master's Guide, there is actually a set of tables that, um, like, are, are used, that you can use, at least, for making magical items. And it's they have true. A, they have a <laughs> bunch of adjectives that mean certain things. Um, and they generally have, like, an explanation. So you can reference those tables. And I thought, well, I could write it. Like, I, 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 I am a, a programmer of some little skill. I could write a like an applet to just make random items, like random magical items. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. I got like all of the uh, the weapons from the weapons table, and I think the armor as well. And I got all these tables from the DMG. I got like all of the uh, the, the the groups of people that who could make an item. I tweaked it for my my world. So I think I removed drow. And I added Galliana because Galliana is known for having like made a couple of, of, of items as well, so I wanted her to be in there, mm-hmm. um, that kind of thing. And I added like all of these these uh, adjectives. And because I was worried about like names, uh, I actually like spent a decent amount of time um, getting it to write like a rudimentary name generator, like giving it some rules to follow about when to put in um, consonants and when to put in vowels, and uh, like whether it wanted to include like the high fantasy apostrophe or a hyphen somewhere in the in the name uh and whether the name was actually like the name of the artifact or whether it was the like dagger of Trixus or something like that um but when i'd done that i was like okay this is pretty cool this will this, this will be a thing that i can just like run a couple of times every time uh matt wants silas to go and browse in the magic shop but i feel like there are other tables of items that i could add to it and so I went and I like found all the tables of like miscellaneous items as well. Yeah. Um, things like rings and like like so there's jewelry and then there was also like uh, I think the junk table as well. And then I came across the table of musical instruments available to bards, and I put that in as well. And suddenly, like I feel like it was actually working correctly, but it's possibly just the inherent ridiculous of the thing, ridi- yeah. ridiculousness of the thing is suddenly I was perceiving this machine as spitting out, like, hundreds of, like, magical sets of bagpipes. And it was the funniest shit ever! So, like, when I was just stuck off the top of my head, like, oh god, like, what, what's a masterwork that a dwarf would come up with? I was like, bagpipes. Some dwarf lord, it, like, sometime in prior history, made a really well-made, like, always-in-tune, possibly magical set of bagpipes and that is in this this uh this box here that's what that is you've no idea how much i appreciate your idea of uh, this randomizing of magic stuff uh, and weapons and armor because y- i am so sick of there only ever be magical swords in in mm-hmm. campaigns because like sometimes what about a magical quarterstaff or a, a sickle, or something like that. Or a magic set of bagpipes. Yes. I'm, I'm kind of pissed off, actually, that I, I wrote it in Java, which is quite difficult to stick up on the net in any kind of accessible form. So I might re, like, remake it in, in JavaScript and see if I can get it hosted for you all to use. But in the meantime, uh, the tables that I used are still in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Like You can go and look them up in the index. Um, and I think they're a reasonably good resource for just on-the-fly making up... Um, magic items when one needs to like come up at some point because i think i tend to forget about magic items like um 
when the party start leveling with like stuff that has resistance to non-magical weapons, I'll sort of like slowly switch them all over to magical weapons, and then I'll forget about magical items again until somebody goes into a magic shop. So like being able to make all of these like magical legendary items, like um, there's one that I've promised is going to turn up in in uh, your campaign, just because I really really love the name it generated, uh, which is the Amulet of Ooh. <laughs> Uh, which I believe is like some kind of amulet that has something to do with um, languages, like allowing you to translate languages. Or possibly like that's what I, I said that it should be like because of the name or something like that. But no, definitely um, that that is where that joke comes from. Uh, and then you fought a hill giant and you decided to cut your losses and run away because like it was approaching the uh, the end of the, the session time. Yeah, which is really unfortunate. It was pretty unfortunate because they didn't find any of the things that they were sent in to find. Um, and, and they knew about them because like, the legend was like, these things were lost in the, in the vault and they were never found. Um, but a hell giant like was one challenge rating above the party, so like you were reasonably lucky in killing it. And then you were like, let's just grab some gold from this, this trough in the, the throne room and, and, and be done with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think my character gave us a good head start on the giant, at least. Oh, you, you, you tripped him over, didn't you? Yeah, I uh, threw a rope uh, uh, towards the thief, and who was hiding behind a pillar, and I was hiding behind the other pillar, and the giant was lumbering towards us, and I was just like, pull it taut with me. And I, I think you just rolled really badly. Oh, he it. rolled like ridiculously badly, and actually he rolled so badly that I was like, the, the giant trips over the rope before you even have a chance to, like, pull it taut around his ankles. He just, like, stubs his toe on it and goes right on his face because <laughs> it was that. But, like, hill giants do not have good means to make deck safes. But, wow, he rolled badly. Yeah, that's what we were hoping on. Um, I think that's me because I kind of talked about, like, the, the Traveller game uh, beforehand. Um, I mean, I really I really love QCon. Um, I helped, like, do some of the, the packing up in the RPG session this year, and uh, we got to talk to um, this guy who was GMing a game. From what I could tell, like, his, his game premise seemed to be the cast of Dad's Army fight Cthulhu. <laughs> and, like, we, we, we got to talk to him because, oh, yeah. because like, we were, we were waiting on him to, like, finish packing his stuff up so that we could, like, um, fold up his tables. And, and you know, like get all the chairs stacked or something, and um, like we asked him how it went, and he said uh, it, it actually went went yeah, went really well. But I was really concerned uh, initially because there were like there were some people who had never seen Dad's Army, um, and and there were some people who had never played Call of Cthulhu. Uh, indeed, there were some people who had never role played before, uh, and uh, I, as far as like the latter goes, I I would I. I'm a veteran of this concept, I suppose, now. Uh, and I was like, it, it worked fine, didn't it? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. They uh, they, they had a really good time. They did a lot of, of entertaining things. Um, he was actually reasonably prepared. He had, um, mm. I, I think he actually like had the characters from the show as like pre-gens in, in, uh, in Call of Cthulhu. So he had like little um, name uh, plaques that had the like, the you have been watching thing from, yeah, from Dad's Army. Yeah. I was like, oh, so... Like this isn't just a, a him doing a, a gimmick game because he's like ah oh, wouldn't wouldn't that be funny like he's put some effort into it and to be honest it's not that silly an idea no like, no uh, yeah, I would totally watch to that's people. that really yeah. should have been the dad's army movie I mean <laughs> <laughs> oh my god 
I agree with that. But yeah, like I, I was really happy to to see stuff like that because I I feel like um quite a lot of con- of like similar conventions will have this happen. But the thing I really love about QCOM is when you're running an RPG and somebody turns up to your table, like RPGs are in high demand. Like I remember Andrew told us that that there were there were more people who wanted to sign up than there were spaces on RPGs being run. Yeah. Wow. Which is simultaneously, like, very flattering and also kind of worrying. Yeah. Because, like, there were people like... But the, the thing is, like, if somebody turns up at your table, that person has at least a passing interest in what you're trying to run. Like, nobody ends up sorted into, like, playing D&D where they're like, I don't really want to play this game, I'm not that interested in it, or something like that. If somebody, like, turns up, they either know how to play D&D, or they don't, and they want to learn. And... I think that's what I, I really love about it is, like, there's always enthusiastic people. Mm. Um, and, like, even in cases where there aren't, it will be a worthwhile experience because if somebody at the end is like, okay, well, well, I've tried it and I, I did my best and I like what you're trying to do, but I don't think this is for me. And I'm like, that's, that's fine. That's cool. This is the perfect environment for you to make that discovery. Like, yeah, I, I think actually maybe I should say that. It's like, if, if there's a, like a, a similar convention near you, I mean, obviously it would take us, like, all day and significantly longer than even this podcast that I might let, like, extend past our normal uh, hour 15 maximum, like, would take to explain exactly what QCOM is like. But but definitely, like, if there's uh, a similar such convention, like, near you that does do really any kind of, of role-playing game, like, to be honest, even LARPing? Like, Maxi, you, you, you uh, played in a LARP at QCOM, didn't you? I do LARP, yeah. Uh, I LARPed last year too. And um, gotta say, most fun I've ever had. <laughs> honestly. It's like trying new things because that's the thing. It's like everybody who comes to that table is going to be just like somebody who's come out from the crowd in the con and wants to try that thing. And people will run like weird experiments and self contained things that are easy to pick up. Yeah. Uh, and there might be organized play there. I remember at QCon they always have the Pathfinder Society, which is. Uh, like the D&D Adventurers League, but the Pathfinder. Uh, I played in it once. I didn't really like it, but that showed me that I am not that fond of Pathfinder. I mean, uh, Becca's like been running Pathfinder in her game, and I've, I've kind of warmed to the system there, but I'm yeah. mm. also really not fond of, of organised play. Like, that was two valuable discoveries that I made, like, last year as to, you know, okay, this is, this is my thing. Well, this year it was my first time uh, playing Call of Cthulhu. And um, a completely new experience for me, and I've been uh, uh, doing RPGs for um, since I was eighteen, and it it was great. I had a lot of time, and if there's anything I can say to uh, someone who wants to try something new, especially at a convention, then no one is there to see you fail at no. anything. Uh, they they want you to have a good time. They want you to come away with something positive, and they will they will help you through the things that are completely unclear um they just want you to enjoy yourselves and uh they'll always be there to if you're like not clear on a certain rule or you don't exactly know what you're doing that's fine they'll just at, be there at the very least <clears throat> at the very least mind the people who are running games there want to have a good time and they rely on you to help them have a good time as well and most of the people who are doing that, they want even more than that. They, they they know that this is their opportunity to 
advertise either the hobby itself or their particular little corner of it that they're running or like their capacity to give other people an enjoyable time or just to, to test that like i know definitely the thing that i love so so much about, about qcon is like the number of people who have never played a role-playing game or have never played uh dnd spe- specifically or have played dnd i've never played the edition of dnd that we're playing or have never played like traveler because i ran traveler this this uh this time and i had one guy who'd played Mongoose Traveler before, which was the edition I was running, and one guy who'd played Traveler a very, very long time ago, but not Mongoose Traveler, and two guys who had never played the system before, but thought it looked interesting. And I'm like, okay, so this is what is good about Traveler, and, and, and this is what I didn't like really want to leave out. Because like, that's why I left character creation in to my uh, mm. Traveler experience, because like, in my opinion, that's one of the best bits of the system. And I wanted to showcase to people who might be new to it like, this is what I really, really love about this game. Uh, and I think a lot of the time, uh, at QCon especially, and I think at similar conventions, um, that's what people are trying to do. And because they're trying to like exude that, they're invested in the idea that, that you should be having a good time. Uh, and they're also invested in the idea that you might not be familiar with the material that they're trying to introduce you to beforehand. Like, in some cases, they're potentially counting on it. So really, like, do not think, oh, I'd kind of like to do that, but I've never really played that sort of thing before. Like, no, no, this is the event where you've never played that sort of thing before and you go and you play it. Absolutely. Like, definitely. I remember um, what I always do uh, and what is a generally good idea um, if you're not doing the thing where, like, character creation is one of the best parts of the game and you want to showcase it is I make pre-generated characters at the right level for the, the scenario and I'm just like okay here are a bunch of characters they have all of their stats set up or most of their stats set up you need to choose a name and in some cases an alignment um, mm-hmm. for one of these pregens so just just pick one and what I tend to do is I make eight like eight pregens because I run games with a maximum of six players and I don't want like the last person to turn up be like oh well, I kind of didn't want to play this class, but it's the only pre-gen left, so I guess I have to. I'm like, no, okay. You have, at minimum, a choice of three. Um, I know that yeah, you didn't do that, Maxi, because you were, like, struggling yeah. to even make seven. Uh, yeah, I because... you ran a game with seven players. I know. Uh, I, I guess it's because I'm used to uh, games being between four and six, and I always kind of, like, feel like, oh, maybe one person could, like, probably squeeze in there and... Uh, I remember the first time I, I ran a game, I was kind of like that as well. I think I had, like, eight people at the table. Mm-hmm. And it was fine, but, you know... Th- there's definitely, I think, nothing wrong with that compulsion at cons like that to be like, oh, no, no, no put the, the limit up as high as we can because I want as many people as possible to mm-hmm. to have fun and to, like, be provided with that. Like... I think it's it's a compulsion you kind of have to resist, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it as a compulsion. I think it's, it's a very good and healthy thing to like want to introduce people to the hobby in like a non-judgmental way where it's like, no, this is an opportunity for you to try new things. And that's what I love about Qcon. And like, it's that, that's that's my outlet to, to do that kind of thing now. Um, and, and it has been for, for two years now. It's, it's just... I love it, and I love it when, like, after the game, people are like, oh, I had a really good time, or, or or even when people are like, well, I didn't really enjoy myself, but now now I know, and I'm like, no, that's cool, That's that was potentially one of the outcomes, mm-hmm. um, is that now you know, right? 
and, and you don't have to bother with it again. But you tried, and you tried in an environment where you trying doesn't have like any consequences beyond this. You can leave the convention hall and never go and play a game of D&D again, and like now you know. That's fine. That's cool. Like, I love just that stuff. Oh god, I just really love people. Right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's so good. Yes, right. Um, Maxi ran a game as well. Uh, Maxi, was this your first time DMing at This, Con? Yeah, this is my first time DMing at a, uh, at a con. Alright, so, so you, only, you only ran one game. Yeah. Um, and I remember, like, before QCon, you had, like, a short list of scenario titles. Did you actually have, like, the scenarios behind these titles, like, written up when you asked me to make the choice? Or did you just have, like, the vague ideas? I had the, the idea, um, but uh, not hadn't done any of the maps yet. Oh, and, so, so um, like, like, a lot of the, the beef then was still, like, waiting to be Yeah, um, I suppose I was most prepared for the ones that were of the investigator, uh, investigatory um, sort, because mm-hmm. um, those are the ones that I guess were more interesting to me, instead of just the pure dungeon crawls, which I was willing to run if anyone was interested in that. Mm-hmm. But so, uh, like you, you, I think you presented me with like four titles and said yeah. like which of these should I run at QCon? And I think we did it by process of elimination because I was like Maxi should do something that is interesting that would fit into the the time slot because you'd be running. I think you said I think you you knew that you wanted to run reasonably late, right? Yeah. Like maybe not as late as the final time slot in in con, but like reasonably late. Um, so we're like, it has to be short to fit in the time. It has to be intensive because you got to get a lot of, of really interesting content into a very small amount of time, um, which means that you want something that doesn't really like leave a, like too many uh, questions open and stuff like that. And ideally, uh, and this was, I suppose, my ulterior motive, I was like, Maxi's thing should be as different from mine as possible so that like there's the least amount of competition overlap between us because then we're both sure to get like players. As it is, that that was not relevant at all because loads of people came wanting to play D and D, and as I remember, like I was told, my games like were the first ever to fill up. Yeah. Uh, but that was just the case also for like all of D and D and Pathfinder. Like everybody wanted to to play those games, and then after that, like the more esoteric games would, would fill up as well because like the whole RPG section was was uh, almost at capacity. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, the end of the shortlist, I was like, you should run The Little Shop of Sparks. So, do you want to tell us about The Little Shop of Sparks then, Maxine? Well, uh, The Little Shop of Sparks is... Um, the whole game was uh, one of the first games that I'm running in my own world that I've been building for um, on and off for the past year. And um, I'm running a, a campaign at the minute which isn't set in my world. And so um, I'm just working on it behind the scenes and occasionally I will do one shots in it. So I set the um, the scenario in one of my cities, Matoth, which is the City of Storms. And the whole deal of the story was that um, the Little Shop of Sparks is a shop that is affectionately nicknamed as such. Um, by the denizens of Matoth's Candela Quarter um, because of its 
frenzied late night activities where uh, all through the night um, sparks can be seen coming from the windows because everyone in the quarter knows that uh, it is the residence of the amateur scientist and shopkeeper Olegus Fenn, a amiable blue dragonborn who d- doesn't always have the best time when it comes to inventing things. Uh, I, I guess I Arthur Weasley kind of inspired me a little bit with his personality. Uh, he was he was designed to be a very sort of sweet character. Uh, well, the whole story revolves around the fact the fact that uh, he goes he's gone missing and has been missing for three weeks. The residents of the Candela Quarter have uh, noticed that the the shop has gone completely dark during the night, so there's no activity that they would normally associate with the shop coming from it at all. And in the morning, people are emerging from the shop, pale and withdrawn and having no memory of ever entering the shop or what happened in there. And also they were never witnessed to be a, they were never witnessed to have entered the shop in the first place. But um, these people are of all different uh, ages and genders and different races and um, there's, there's no similarities between them whatsoever except for the fact that they just cannot remember anything about the shop. And also some of them are residents of the city while some of them are from different parts of the world, even different continents once they're able to uh, piece together their own uh their own mindset again. So the whole story starts that uh, the Denisons have uh, been asking around for help and that's where the party comes in because uh, the Denisons don't want to go in the shop. Uh, So why not send in a group of adventurers in there to see if they can sort it out for them. The thing about this is that um, I decided to do something interesting as well where I would give each of my... uh, each of my player characters an ulterior motive for going into the shop. I would give them their own individual quest that I would hand them at the start of the game. So uh, I've got my uh, list here of people who um, attended. So we have um, Philip, who played Alec Longstaff, who was a half-elf cleric. And his ulterior motive was he had an enchanted card, which he was told to hide somewhere in the shop. Then I had uh, Gareth, who played the human thief Cooper. His ulterior motive was to find a black dragon scale and steal it. I had Jacob, who played uh, admittedly my favourite sort of pre-gen. He was Craig the Gnome Fighter. Because, um, (laughs) as as Alex will attest to you, I have a fascination of... um, small characters who can pack one hell of a punch and it goes back to the time of Little Bear, the the halfling who was a... I remember, uh, remember Little Bear, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, our, 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 uh, our friend... Richard. Richard yes, uh, Richard like, played a... He played quite a lot of, of uh, scrappy halflings uh, in the time that he played with us, but... But they were, they were very tough. They yeah. had an, an amazing strength capacity and uh, would always scream incoherently and run into battle whenever he saw it. That's not always the case because he, he played that um, that druid halfling who hid in backpacks. Oh yeah, and was essentially a sort of like turret because he had a sling. 
So he would like pop out of <laughs> the backpack and then like he would just be like a sort of covering the back of the person. But no, Little Bear I think was his most famous creation, and uh, he was in uh, a fighter halfling in AD and D. And like mm-hmm. in AD and D, provided you got a high strength score, a fighter was not the worst thing yeah. that a halfling could be. Like they weren't unsuited to the class, but they definitely like it wasn't an optimal build. So you could really see how how he loved like making scrappy halflings. Well, Craig the uh, gnome fighter had an 18 for his strength, and uh, the player actually came up to me afterwards and said he ran a dragonborn paladin with only 17 strength earlier, which was amusing. And uh, his ulterior motive was he had to pour a purple vial, if he should find it, on a smooth crystalline stone. Then we had uh, Leah. Could that, uh, oh, sorry, um, sorry. Uh, could that be like any crystalline stone, or was there a specific one inside that they knew was inside the shop that they wanted him to do that on? That was the thing about the motives. They, um, the the motives were given to them by people who obviously knew more than they were saying, and um, uh, it was up, really up to the players to discuss to decide who was who, on, under whose payroll they were actually acting on. Really, these definitely actually sound like the uh, the kind of motives that. Players in in my sort of campaign uh, might be given uh, when embarking on an unrelated quest by the Society of Quiet Protectors. <laughs> this also are... sounds like the sort of bullshit Lady M comes up with. So, oh yeah, Lady <laughs> M also would would do that kind of thing. So I think like all all three of us love this idea of of uh, sort of uh, tertiary um, interests, yeah. third parties who who know more than they let on. So we had Leah who played Laura the uh, wood elf bard, and she was actually, her ulterior motive was, I think, the one that you could easily identify with, that she had to decide whether or not Oligus needed to be arrested, and was it was up to her whether or not to find him guilty or innocent, or whatever it was that was going on there, and was to file a report, uh, a report to um, her supervisors. So I... I guess she was like the working for the police of Metal. Or the uh, FBI, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> federal <laughs> FBB Federal Bureau of Bards. Then we had a uh, Brandon who uh played Charlie, the human wizard. Brandon had never played before. And so There's that always was... one of those I think I described one in, in like the, the first of these the the Kikon twenty two experiment, that there was a, a bard who who had never played before. I love like like the uh, the player who has never played before, but like once they they get into it and they realise that the amount of, of scope that's available to them, like they really get into the swing of it and they like was that was that the case in this case? Yeah, yeah, he, he really enjoyed himself and uh, Yeah. His ulterior motive was to find a and this is the one that was very specific, find a blue and green flask of liquid that glowed intermittently and smash it did you like um brandon did you say yes did you deliberately give him like one of the the most explicit and least like vague uh ulterior motives on purpose or did he just roll that one i uh handed them out at random except for one which i'm about to get on to in a second so it just happened to be that he got one that would be reasonably easy to to understand for like somebody yeah who was maybe not that confident with with the like what was going on okay cool mm-hmm. then uh i had uh two players peter and steven who i can't exactly remember 
uh, which characters they played, but I have their characters' names, uh, what they were. So one of them played Diz, the half-orc druid, and he had to find uh, an interesting scroll or notes uh, that would be considered valuable, like br- blueprints of um, uh, of something within the shop that he could perhaps sell to the highest bidder. Again, it was entirely up to him what his, uh, what his character would want uh, interesting notes for. And then uh, one of them played uh, Gurmas, the dwarf monk. And this is the one who I deliberately um, saved the character, the character objective because I did not want the druid to get it because it was literally protect the druid. Under all circumstances, protect the druid was his ulterior motive. So uh, that was all of them. And uh, Sorry, um, Peter and Stephen, uh, were they... Uh, were they related? Was this the the infamous Hand Brothers? Because <laughs> um, I had them in one of my games as well. In fact, I had them in two of my games uh, because they were both in, I think, the, my first game, and then Peter came back to play in my Traveller game as well. I, I have no idea. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure, because Diz was a, a character name that I remember uh, being in, in one of my games, um, that they, they probably are... Um, it was definitely like they weren't identical or anything, but they they definitely looked like each other. So uh, okay. Peter, I am sure, would have been uh, the Peter that I knew, and Stephen may have been his brother. I don't quite remember. Well, the game started uh, with everyone gathered outside of the shop, and uh, they'd drawn qu- quite a crowd because uh, everyone was really curious to see what's going to happen to these guys when they uh, when they go in and uh, if they get out. So they do uh, the smart thing and they ask the locals um, about what's what's been going on, how long this has been going on for. They ask for information about Olagus. Um, if anyone worked with him, they found out he had a, an assistant, uh, a half-elf lady called Terry with an eye. And they asked about the people leaving it and how long Olagus had lived and worked. And just simple questions to get a feel for it. Then they uh then they decided to um go to the makeshift hospice that had been uh recently set up by uh, a cleric from the temple district uh for the people who were coming out of the shop every morning with the uh the pale withdrawn features that they were having and were taking care of them. Mm-hmm. So they went to uh they went to see her, uh ask her some questions. Uh, Alec, the cleric, attempted to heal one of the patients. It had little effect on the patient other than to alleviate the sweating a little bit. Um, They asked about the patient's condition and then they left and returned to the shop. Then they decided to um, see if there were any other ways into the shop. Uh, They went behind it and they found doors to a cellar. Um... I think Charlie was able to detect magic coming from the seams and the gaps within the doors. And the door had a heavy chain around it and was padlocked. And they did a perception check and saw that it was um, uh, it was rarely, rarely used. It was quite rusted over time. And um, they all noticed a bunch of people like watching them from the sidelines. And it was Alora who got a very high perception check and saw that they these people were betting on who was going to die first which uh which caused the dwarf to get rather rather annoyed with these betters and uh, attempted to confront them 
and the, they skulked off and left. So uh, finally, after doing all the outside checks, they they went into the shop. Uh, Cooper opened the door and like pressed himself up against the side wall in, in case of a in case of a trap, which was uh, he continues to do. But it becomes very amusing later on uh, when someone tries to copy him, and I'll tell you later on. So they they enter the shop and they look around and they um. They find uh, clockwork, life-sized uh, soldiers that have uh, been erected in stands, and uh, they, they they have a look at them, and they see that um, they've uh, their power outlets have been blown out with magic, and they're in, in very poor condition. Some of them have been hastily stuck together with like a, an adhesive tree sap, and they found some notes pertaining to their construction. And how they were built, and uh, also Ologus's fumbled way of writing about them, of like uh, all the different things that he was trying to get them to work and was failing at it. This was where Alec fulfilled his objective. He put his enchanted card underneath a desk. And um, I had told the party at the very beginning that you can interfere with each other's objectives. That that is totally a thing that you can do. Well, did they did they know what each other's objectives were no. beforehand? Well, so so, not. so you'd have to give them permission, right? Because otherwise, they might do it by accident. Yes. So they decided to uh, check the first floor, which was uh, just a living space. Um, they didn't find anything of real interest. But then they decided to check out the attic. In the attic, they found a bunch of crates covered uh, covered by sheets and two human-sized figures covered by sheets. Uh, this caused a lot of paranoia and tension, and they very gen- gingerly took off the sheets and found a humanoid skeleton uh, strung up on, um, uh, like, a medical skeleton. So it was strung up like that. And then a dragonborn skeleton strung up in a similar manner. Um... Then uh, they made a perception check, and the thief, Cooper, was able to hear the dragonborn skeleton breathing very, very raspily, and upon closer inspection, was absolutely convinced he could hear the skeleton calling for help. Already, the group are very concerned and very frightened, so they all... They, I think one of them says, we'll come back and help you, we promise, and then headed downstairs. Um, so they were left with the problem that, um, well, the main problem is that they'd found cellar doors, but they couldn't find the cellar. So um, after, after looking around, they were able to spot a flask on a, um, on a shelf that uh, was full of a solid liquid and were able to basically find out that this was a, uh, a mechanism to open the back wall. And uh, they pulled it and they opened the door downstairs into uh, a corridor. So they all headed down to, to this corridor and they found a room full of um, alchemical things. Um, just three tables with an assortment of alchemicals and uh, notes were everywhere, and they managed to find 
in their coupled search, the some of the notes were Olegus's, but some of them were not written in his handwriting at all. Then they moved on to the next room where they found five massive levers. That was all that was in this room, five massive levers, each with a coloured knob on each of them. So it went blue, green, red, black, and white. Um, I can't actually remember which one they pulled first. I think it was red. And um, upon pulling the red one, they heard noises from the other room after watching the room that they were in shimmer for a second. Uh, the wizard, Charlie, cast invisible invisibility and went into the other room to investigate. And they saw themselves um, doing everything that they had been uh, doing previously. So already time shenanigans are happening. Uh, Charlie comes back and tells the group and they start panicking because they are all thinking, oh God, we're going to, we're going to break the, uh, time and space continuum uh and they immediately pull another lever (laughs) (laughs) this was their plan like maybe if we we pull a different colored one we will be able to do something uh so they pulled another lever uh the ceiling shimmered this time and it began to slowly rain tangerines on them that that was it. That was so the... so not so not like a torrent of tangerines, just like a tangerine every kind periodically every few seconds, presumably. No, like 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 tangerines falling like like snow, basically, right. down on them. Like very slowly and softly, just bouncing off them all. Um Then their doubles entered the room and um upon seeing each other their doubles thankfully disappeared. You see, what I'd actually done was I had made a uh, table for each coloured lever mm-hmm. and would roll a 1d8 to see which effect would actually happen. Right. So um, after the, uh, the, the first and the second lever, they, uh, they decided to pull another lever. Uh, I, I believe it was actually the same person pulling the lever. It was Craig. Craig, the gnome fighter, kept pulling the levers. And this time, uh, I actually, uh, I rolled on the table and I took an idea that uh, you once showed me, Beth, actually. Because oh. uh, you remember the uh, the mushroom yes. E100 percentile? Yeah. I was really, really fascinated by the one where you hear the thoughts of the other people in your group, but you can only hear what they think of you. <laughs> so um, he uh, he actually, uh, I rolled for that, and that's what he got. So I quickly then asked everyone gathered there to um, to tell the the gnome what they what their character thought of him, and uh, it was incredibly hilarious because uh, the results caused the uh, the gnome to yell. At the 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 half orc druid and um, just insult him. Uh, he burst into tears when he heard one of them hated his hair. <laughs> he he hugged the one who thought he was okay, um, and uh, he was very. Happy. The last person said, "I love the gnome's hair." <laughs> so the gnome went through 
what could be equated as uh, the five stages of grief, I guess. <laughs> it, I within guess. within thirty seconds. Yeah. Uh, it was it was hilarious. Um, oh, I actually forgot to tell you what happened in the uh, the alchemical room because uh, one of the other players actually managed to complete their objective. Uh, Craig managed to pick up a uh, purple vial and pour it on a crystalline stone after which he was uh, during before which he was confronted about it and uh the other players tried to stop him and he lied to them and got a 20 on his deception uh... and uh so they 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 believed him completely that this was something that he had seen happen where he comes from and that had to happen all right <laughs> and it was hilarious so so anyway, uh, after after pulling the third lever, uh, they decided to pull another lever because why not? Mm. So they actually did go through all five colors. Uh, the next lever caused the room and them to spin. Like the room span in one way, and they all span in the other way, as though they were on roller skates. <laughs> and uh, they all had to then roll to see if they managed to grab one of the other uh, one of the other levers uh, to keep themselves balanced. And they managed to grab the white lever last. And uh, I think it was Cooper who pulled it. And instantly they were teleported from the room completely and um, were suddenly in a void full of white spheres everywhere. Black void, but white spheres standing in nothing. So they walked up to these spheres and figured out that they could see moments not only in space, but also in time as well. Uh, each of them were able to look into a sphere and some of them saw a historical event, while other ones, like Cooper, saw the uh, the president of Mataf taking her morning bath, which was, <laughs> which was interesting. Uh, in any case, they they didn't need to escape from there long because the effects don't last very long. So um, they were instantly teleported out of there and back into the room with levers. So they decided to check out a uh, another room, and it was at this point where the um, I think it was the monk Gurmus decided to mock the thief by opening the door uh, in the same way that the thief does, by um, opening it at the handle, then pressing himself against the wall in a paranoid way before opening the door. And it was at this point he actually triggered a trap and that sent a volley of arrows through the door, which I thought was hilarious because then Cooper yelled at it, you see? You see why I do this? <laughs> they went in and they found a console in there. Uh, a golden console full of buttons. They decided not to mess with it after what happened in the other room, which was a shame, but at the same time, probably for the best. Then they finally went into uh, the last room before before the end, where I think most of them actually completed their objectives here. It was it uh, it was at this point, Alora decided that Olagus was probably innocent, especially as she was continuously finding notes that were not written in his handwriting pertaining to uh, a plot of a diabolical nature and that yeah. someone had taken over this shop and put Olagus and his poor assistant out of commission 
while they were doing God knows what there. They unfortunately didn't get a high enough role to figure out what what was going on. But um, Laura decided that Oligus was probably innocent. Mm. Uh, in the next room, there so, was... Uh, if Laura, when Laura decides that Oligus is, is innocent, how many uh, ulterior motives have been completed at this point? Um, three out of four. Okay. It was uh, in this room, we found another alchemical table. And it, this was the room where we saw a massive black dragon scale mounted on one of the tables <laughs> with um, these magical um, tendril-like ropes attached to it, which were acting as like conductor cables that snaked out of the room down a corridor. It was at this point that the thief decided, now is my time to complete the objective. I found what I'm looking for. And he proceeds to cut the ropes. And um, uh, no one stops him, surprisingly. <laughs> no one decides that this is a bad idea. And he succeeds in getting the Black Dragon scale and tucking it away in his backpack, which it was pretty heavy. Um, ah, the blue-green flask was also found in this room. And it was, uh, it was picked up by the Craig who uh, decided that maybe he should give this to Charlie as the only wizard of the group to figure out what was in here. Charlie wants to destroy that flask. When Charlie got the flask, he uh, rolled very, very low and said, I want to drop the flask. <laughs> so... Uh, that's, that's masterful, really. Yeah, he, he rolled very, very low for his... Um, for his inspecting of the flask, so it basically looked as if the uh, the gnome was handing over the flask, and Charlie just went "oops" and was going to pin it all on Craig. Uh, unfortunately, um, there there's a little thing called uh, whether or not anyone wants to try a deck saving throw to see if they can grab like a uh, uh, quickly run in there and see if they can grab the flask and i think uh alora su- yeah alora succeeded and uh decided to hold on to the flask so um charlie failed his objective oh no <laughs> <laughs> and now alora still has this magical blue and green flask which she doesn't know what it does or why it needs to be destroyed or anything did Afterwards, did Charlie try and proceed to try and like bargain to get the flask back at any point? Well, perhaps if we'd had more time, um, because uh, at this point they decided to follow the uh, the the conducting magical ropes into the corridor, which led them to the boss room, basically, where they found that the um, the ropes were all connected to this massive dais in the the back of the room and there was a uh, a human man who was like uh standing there and uh it, it was at that point that we had an epic encounter uh unfortunately um there was some stuff that i had to uh c- cut out of it because um the, the group were taking quite a long while and so there was like there was going to be another room that they actually entered into, which was going to be just full of magical darkness, where they had to like all hold onto one another's shoulders if they were if they wanted to go down that route and navigate themselves through it. But I had thirty minutes left, and my main villain was also had too many hit points for them to um, 
uh, to reasonably get him down within the time frame. So I had to uh, cut his hit points down just a little bit. But he still did them for like quite a lot of uh, damage. It was very epic confrontation and uh it was at this point actually that Alora did something amazing she used shatter on um which has the effect to shatter um stone and objects and things like that which caused the dais to crack in the middle of the dais was one of the white spheres that they had seen in the void of time and space which was like a increasingly growing bigger up until this point and then when the dais cracked it all of a sudden started to go smaller and um my villain was horrified beyond all belief and then just wanted to kill these guys completely and um uh this was around the point where like because i was i was helping to to tidy up at this point but i i come over to you and i'm like you've got like Maybe ten minutes. Yeah, so, so like uh, um, it's good that, that they were that they were there, nearly there then. Yeah, so uh, I we got them through the the end boss, and then I decided to narrate to them. Um, the they walked the way they came out of the cellar. They uh, went upstairs. They heard movement uh, on the first floor and went to investigate and saw Ologus standing there with his uh, his arm round his uh, half elf assistant both propping each other up looking relieved and uh tr- trying to support one another and i think uh craig the uh the craig's player said i ship it like, <laughs> <laughs> and i was so, like okay and they were very happy that they had been rescued and that was the end of my scenario so so that was them uh with the villain gone them having been uh reflationated yes Considerably they were more no longer fleshy, medical skeletons. Otherwise, mm. otherwise it's just under telephone. And that's my contribution to this podcast! <laughs> uh, do we want to do uh, Tuesday's game as well? Oh, I, yeah. I, I, I really want to talk about Tuesday's game. I, I, I really, really want you to talk about Tuesday's game, because I had a lot of fun with that one. This can go on. Like, we're, like, we're, at, we're at an hour and 20 minutes, but that's before um, silence cutting, and before I've cut up all the bit at the beginning with, like, bullshit with Beth comes <laughs> <laughs> Beth, Beth, stop clapping. We, it we... doesn't, it doesn't do work now. <laughs> All right, you go for it. All right, so um, as is tradition, uh, like uh, you're you're here for pretty much the whole week, right? Yeah, I'm here till Saturday. Okay, yeah. So so Maxie's over here for a week, um, and as is tradition, she she always comes to the Tuesday like, night, the, the Tuesday night uh, Dragon Slayers when when she's over. Um, and I generally run like a, a one shot or something. Like occasionally, I will run like an esoteric uh, system, something that I own but I don't get to play a lot of. But in this case, um, I'd sort of got into the groove of making uh, more content for my setting, having done so for uh, the for, for, for my coupon scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made an elf variant called the Artentumi, who are like mountain elves uh, from a from a tiny little village. So something else that I've added, uh, some of you may remember, I don't actually know if I mentioned it on the podcast, but a lot, uh, you know, some, some of you may remember, um, one of the things that I didn't really allow in, uh, in, uh, Dawn Somber was, if you're a warlock, you can't take the Great Old One patron, because there aren't any Great Old Ones, because I'm not putting fucking Cthulhu in, in the, the D&D setting, that's, that's stupid. Mm-hmm. 
And I was like, when the uh, interdimensionals turn up, they will replace the Great Old Ones and you can use them for the Great Old One like thing. But there's only one of those in any continuity of the setting ever. Uh, and you probably don't want to strike a Faustian pact with him, to be honest. He's not a responsible person. Um, well, there's a new update. That's gone. Like, maybe in the future, Interdimensionals will, like, come back as a, a Warlock Pact. But if they do, they will be a separate pact. It will all be, um, like, what is the word? It's like, it, it's for Unearthed Arcana, but, like, players make it. Errata? No, not Errata, because oh. that's, that's when, when Wizards make it. Okay. Maybe it just is Unearthed Arcana. I don't know. But the point is, like, it will all be stuff I, I made up. Because um, I'm making up a, a Warlock patron for, like, the Arch Dragons. Ah, okay. Which is an entirely separate patron. But I was like, the Great Old One patron, I actually didn't approach it from this this uh, direction at all. I am, in fact, lying to you. I'm lying to everybody on the podcast. I, in fact, do this frequently. Uh, I'm, I'm deceiving you because I have no respect whatsoever for, like, you or your opinions. My name isn't even Alex. I lied about that. <laughs> no, but um, I, I... I'm shocked. I can't I, I've, I've known you for a very long time, Alex. I can't Not Alex. Alex for granted all along. Or maybe, maybe my name is Alex and I'm just lying right now. You don't know. The mind games. Speaking of the mind games. <laughs> yes. So, so what I came up with was like, um, if you look at the doppelganger in the, uh, the monster manual, and we talked about the doppelganger on the Halloween episode. We did. I was like, I don't believe that this thing is a monster indigenous to the material plane. I'm sorry, I don't. It looks like a fucking alien. And I was like, well, I don't really want to put aliens in here, but the Gith used to be aliens. They, mm. they came from, like, the Spelljammer setting. And yeah. now that now they're in here, like, the Gith and the Githzerai, like, they're still there. Sorry, the, the Gith Yankee and the Githzerai, they're all Gith, uh, are still there, but now they live in the astral plane rather than in space. So maybe... I could do something like that with doppelgangers. Maybe, like, I could... And, and that's what I did. I eventually... I made them come from a uh, an exoplane that's like the Feywild or the Shadowfell or the Realm of Demons. Uh, and it's called the Mansion of Mirrors. And the gist of it is that a... The, the first great old one in the setting, there may be more in the future, but he is the first, uh, a, a, a being called the Everfalse King created the doppelganger race... Uh, and uh, like their whole deal is that they they covet the material plane. They're jealous that uh, that the mortal races get to you know be original and and, and have all these 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 nice things. Um, but like their perception of it is like viewing uh, the material plane through frosted glass or through a camera with Vaseline rubbed on the lens. So they get a lot of stuff wrong. So the the Mansion of Mirrors is like this horrible dimension where everything looks vaguely familiar, but it's, like, all Uncanny Valley. Like, like the people look weird. It's like if you've ever played, like, a, a Quake Engine game, but the textures haven't loaded in properly, where everyone's this, this sort of, like, cauliflower-like amorphous blob. And, like, uh, th there'll be weird things like um, a dining room with too many chairs at the dining table and stuff like that. And... Uh, just loads and loads of doppelgangers would come from there. And, and on Tuesday, I decided, okay, um, I have the attention span of a goldfish, so having just made up this new dimension, now I want to run a scenario set in it. So that was what I did. Yeah, and uh, according to Skype, it was um, 
six o'clock in the morning when you originally sent me the new page that you'd made on the Mansion of Mirrors. Yeah, I, I sent you it, and then I decided to delete that message and send it to, like, everyone. Yes. Um, so, Mansion of Madness is where doppelgangers come from. And it's not, like, where doppelgangers, like, exclusively come from. It's a lot like the Feywild, in that, like, Fey live in the Feywild, but there are still loads of Fey in the Material Plane. Like, there are loads of, like, fairies and witches and whatever. And it's like that with the Mansion of, of Mirrors. Like, a lot of the time... The vast majority of the population of doppelgangers live in the Mansion of Mirrors, but there are lots of doppelgangers, like, impersonating people in the material plane. They have a very high success rate in terms of infiltration compared to, like, well, demons, for instance, who mm. are prevented usually from entering the material plane uh, quite strictly. So when Alex told me he wanted to run this game on uh, Tuesday for uh, Dragon Slayers, um, I reintroduced him to a character I had uh, made in um, October of last year. And he said, yes, great, that's perfect. You yes, can... this was the perfect character for Maxi to run in this game. Maxi, do you want to talk about Pilvestra? Um Okay, uh, just so long as uh, you didn't want me to spoil anything for when you were talking about it? Or... Um, actually, yeah, let, let, me, let me talk a little bit. So, there were three players. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rex, uh, Niall, and Maxi. Uh, Niall made a fighter. A human fighter, a human, I think it was. A, yeah, a human fighter named August. Uh, Rex brought a, a one-shot character that he had previously played in a private one-shot, uh, where that character and a bunch of other characters fought uh, the evil plans of a Taramaxu in a sort of and-then-there-were-none kind of deal. They like went to a house where everyone had an interest in death and then people started getting bumped off. And he apparently came out of that a little the worse for wear. Yeah. Because the one stipulation that I had for uh, everyone in this game was I was like, your character has to have a deepest, darkest existential fear. Like, um, what did August choose? August's was... Um, Disease. Be yeah, becoming diseased. And Rex chose for uh, Grabthar, who was a dwarf... Fighter, yeah. A dwarf fighter with a hammer. Uh, chose... The, he decided that since Grabthar's experiences in the horrible and then there were none house, he was now deathly terrified of things being incomprehensible. Like, he didn't like when things didn't make sense, and he didn't like not understanding things, because that meant that they were dangerous and they could hurt him. Mm. And I was like, oh, this character is going to have a bad time in the Match of Mirrors. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was perfect, actually. Yeah. Now, Calvestra, I did not I, I did not need to ask Maxi for a... a uh, a fear, because Maxi, having already described Calvestra as a character to me, I already knew what Calvestra's fear was. And uh, this this was pretty perfect, I think. Mm. And uh, Calvestra was a human cleric uh, mm. in the uh, the life domain. So um, she, she was the healer of the two fighters. And we decided everyone was going to be from Varash, didn't we? Yeah. So uh, Calvestra... Uh, I think we decided on Essa, didn't we, as being her patron? Yeah. But she was uh, a follower of the Kirk, so she wasn't, like, yeah, she... thinking of, like, a pantheon of gods. She was just, uh... I throw my lot in with... With, uh... with whoever might be able to help. Mm -hmm. Just, just, sure, okay, uh, I'll be a cleric of you. Which fits very well with uh, the desperation inherent in Calvestra's character, because she has a deep, dark secret. Actually, do you want to slow roll this? Do we want to just not mention the secret until it becomes relevant to yeah. the story? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. So, um, 
the the beginning of the story is uh, it was a dark and stormy night, but like actually a dark and stormy night. A magical storm had fallen over Varash, like the kind that gets all the mad scientists of Varash really excited, and they go and run up their lightning conductors in preparation for the the, the magical lightning that will bring their creations to life. Um, and all three of these characters are staring into a mirror for some reason. Maybe they did pass by a mirror uh, on their way through like a sheltered bazaar or something, or maybe they just have a full-length mirror in their uh, in their room. I believe somebody was like cleaning their boots or something, and they needed to like oh, use the mirror to, to check the August. Yeah, August was was, was cleaning his boots, um, and then suddenly, uh, at least what most people saw was suddenly the expression of your reflection changes, and uh, it reaches out of the mirror and grabs you by the wrist and the sharp tug. It sort of uh, swings you around in, in, in kind of like a, a ballroom dancing move until it's on the outside and you're on the inside. Oh. And uh, everything goes black. And when you wake up, you find that you are lying on a table in a dining room in the Mansion of Mirrors. Um, the way the mansion worked, and I, I, I was thinking actually that what I might do is actually like uh, write this scenario up properly and then release it Ooh. because... It required really like very little work, and it's not actually honestly connected to anything. Um, there were a bunch of rooms, and the rooms connected to each other like basically randomly. Whenever the players went through a door, I would roll some dice, and I'd be like, "Okay, let's pick this room," and and then they would go into that room from like a door that I decided. And the the fun thing about the Mansion of Mirrors is that um, if I'm getting this word right. Some aspect of it required weird ass lateral thinking. Mm -hmm. Like uh, that is the words. Do you want to tell them about the bath? Because that was the first one you guys found. Um, we just found the hall of mirrors, and yet, yeah, yeah uh, the bathroom was the first official room in which um, uh, in which a weird lateral thinking puzzle happened. Yeah, um, there was a tiled room, and down the. Down the corridor uh, in front of us, there was like, uh, the door that we came into completely disappeared. That was a theme throughout the entire thing. And the only way out was down this small corridor in which at the end of it, the door was absolutely tiny and you could only probably get your arm Yeah, we're, we're talking like cat flap size. Yes. And there was, uh, the only thing in this room was this large uh, bubble bath with massive bubbles coming out of it and just uh, popping on the ceiling. This actually stumped us for quite a while. It did, and I think like the reason for that was because it was the first of such puzzles you'd found, yeah. so you weren't really like thinking along the right lines. It, in the end, um, it turned out that it was a, a perception trick. We had to uh, magnify the door, and so um, eventually we, we managed to figure out that... Um, if we if we took one of the large bubbles that were coming out of the uh, out of the bathtub and held it in front of the tiny door at a certain point, like not too close and not too far away, the door would be magnified to a normal size and we could step through it. But it, you step through it through like the space of your perception of the door, so that exactly. was like, through the bubble, yes, which was really weird. And it's like um, this is this is the recurrent theme in the Mansion of Mirrors is perception rules. Things are how, how you perceive them. I think like the, the wiki page is like uh, the, the works of M.C. Escher 
are the, the kind of thing where it's like mm. impossible things can happen so long as you can perceive of them happening. But this this room uh, made me laugh quite a lot because uh, every time we tried to do something, you would have uh, the oh, yeah, woman right. fighter so, make a wisdom save. Grabthar, right. So Grabthar, this was not what the fear mechanic was supposed to be about, right? Like the fear mechanic, it, originally I intended specifically to come up once at the end of the scenario. But because Rex had chosen for Grabthar to be like, to have his resolve tested every single time something weird or unexplainable happened. Every time somebody did weird-ass logic, like magnifying a door in a soap bubble so that it was big enough to walk through or something like that, he had to make a wisdom save, and every wisdom save that he failed, he took psychic damage. <laughs> I love that. I, just, I love that. I was just like, like um, something strange happens. No, fuck this. Fuck this. I'm out. I'm out. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, I think later on you guys found out that you could give him advantage on his next save against something weird happening by making him drink. Yes. Like as long as he drunk, he, he'd have advantage on the next. Um, uh... August had a f- oh, a flask of alcohol, which he just passed um, to uh, Grandfather to. Um, Make himself feel a little bit better here. Yeah. <laughs> and to give him advantage on wisdom rolls. So, uh, a little later on uh, is when you guys first came across Arcris Vath. Yes. So, uh, you haven't met any monsters yet here, but uh, you go into a room and the room is... Uh, Sort of kind of like, I guess, a a bar of some sort, except there's no bar. It's just a whole load of, like, tables, like in a coffee shop, but with, like, chairs around them. Mm -hmm. And sitting at one of the chairs, there's this tiefling nerd. Yes. Like, let's let's not mince words here. Arthur's Vath is a nerd. He had cute little glasses on, and he was... Like, he was wearing, like, a shirt and, and uh, like, a bright maroon tunic. But if you imagine him in, like, almost like in a turtleneck sweater, like... That's the sort of thing that Arcus Vath would wear. And he had, like, tiny little, like, circular spectacles. And let's not mince words, he was adorable. Yeah, he, he, he was, he, he talked really nervously. He was frightened of the, the party when they first came in until he realised that they were, they were not, like, the monsters that he'd seen. Um, and and he, so, he was just very endearing as like, a character. Like, Arcus introduces himself and he's like, oh, um, I'm a doctor. Yeah. You know? Um, I, I can help in yeah, any way I, I, I can. I, I'm a medical doctor. I, I'm not really one for fighting, but I've I've had to learn quickly mm-hmm. in this this horrible place. Oh, oh uh, you, you promise you're not monsters. Uh, yeah. And, so uh, so we calmed him down, and we all decided to turn uh, our three man group into a four person group. Yeah. So so they took Arcris back with them, and and Arcris helped because like Arcris sort of acted as like. Um, the character from the video game who, if you're spending too long to complete the puzzle, he starts, like, making, like, pointed comments. Almost, uh, almost as if he doesn't understand what he's saying. I, like, I don't remember him actually, like, ever making any pointed comic- comments. Well, not he really was, pointed comments, He was comments, really nice but, about but, everything. Like, um, I think a couple of times he did, but you were mostly fast enough with the puzzles after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, no, like, like, um... I was not actually expecting like Arcris to be so over as a as uh, a character. Like like he he seemed to genuinely endear himself to everyone who talked to him. Like like he was nervous, but uh, he I think it was he never made a nuisance of himself because in mm. combat he was like he had a very low damage output, but he kept rolling like really good rolls, and so he'd be like no, uh, and he warned them because uh, when they they started fighting these doppelgangers, what they found is that like the doppelgangers had a very 
limited pool of um, reference as to what the people they were supposed to be impersonating look like. So everyone like looks like uh, like a Picasso painting, and those are the good ones. Like they have like high definition eyes and stuff on them. Like a lot of of, of people like look just sort of like a cauliflower with with fists. Yes. Or, or something like that. Um, but he was the first to point out that the longer you spend fighting these creatures, the more they learn about how to look like you. And then he proceeded to start singing completely out of tune, uh, yeah. the warning to us. He was like, I am the real me, pay <laughs> attention to where I am in the battle. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to try and avoid the whole, uh, uh, shoot him, he's the clone. Yes. Kind, kind of, uh, of, of trope. So, you guys went through a bunch of rooms. Oh yeah, so many rooms. Including one that I, I, I added during the, the game, uh, after a comment that Maxi made as Calvestra. Yeah. Um, Calvestra. And no, it, it, it just seemed that people were genu- genuinely, like, uh, endeared, endeared to, to Arcarus, because I think Calvestra liked, liked him because he was, uh... A scholar. Yeah, yeah, he, 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 he was a scholar, and he was, he was very polite, mm-hmm. you know, he, he was a little timid, but, but he... He knew how to talk to people. And his story, I think, was that he'd been part of an archaeological expedition to uh, uh, in, from Ruland yeah, into from, the Elven Empire, a secret one. And then they'd hidden in a cave from a storm, and the cave had a perfectly still pool in it. And he and bent he, over to drink. He bent over to drink from it, and his reflection had reached up and pulled him in. Like that, that was his his story. And uh, I think uh, I think August liked him because like he was like yeah. He was no, get no, he was I getting could... involved. That's yeah, why. Yeah, because because Arthas was like getting a whole load of good hits off against the the horrible monsters and stuff. Yeah. Like that. So uh, August actually handed him a hand axe and yeah. said like, "Here, we'll upgrade you with this." Yeah, like August liked teaching uh, Arthas how to use this this hand axe. Um, I can't remember why Grabthar liked him, but I'm pretty sure that he did as well. Mm. Um, so you go through like a bunch of rooms, and there's like puzzles like. Um, a tiny doorway on a table, and you've got to sort of, like, duck behind the table to make the door the right size. Yep. And uh, a pair of doorways that you have to, like, match up two-thirds of a door jam with the other third, which is on, like, the opposite wall, and you, you look around a corner in order to, like, get them to line up and stuff like that. There was one that you never saw, which uh, Niall actually called ahead of time, which is that there is a square room with a mirror diagonally across it and two doors, like... One on like the south and one on the west, but the reflections in the east and the north are also doors ah. <laughs> that you can like walk through if you believe <laughs> and stuff like that. But uh, and all this time, by the way, like all of this stuff that they find every time they see something weird, like really weird, like for instance the windows out onto the storm, where if you smash them, you realize they're mirrors. Yeah. Like, they don't actually leave anywhere. And there's anywhere. just a wall behind just them. just a wall behind them. Every time something weird happened, that's a- another wisdom save for Grabthar. <laughs> <laughs> who may or may not be tanked up with alcohol. Yeah, I, I think Colvestra did more healing for him on his wiz- uh, <laughs> as a result of what he was doing to himself yeah. than anything else. There, there was a time as well where, like, Grabthar was the first to figure out a puzzle. And he was like, okay... No, I can do this. I'm going to to like go through the the door first. I'm I'm going to use the fucked up logic of this place. Uh, and I was like, oh, this is a really important save because if you make this save, then like Grabthar becomes the master of this format, and he 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 loses the effect of his fear on like 
anything that the mansion can throw at him. And unfortunately, he say, he failed that save. Uh, <laughs> and instead, what he got was like, oh my god, I'm becoming one of them. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Poor Grandpa. Um, so in the penultimate room, because I, I I made you guys wander around like a bunch of of the same rooms in like weird yeah, succession. and I uh, I got you to uh, accidentally draw in a library after ask after my character yeah yeah because Covestri asks uh, Arcus if there was a library and I was like mm, maybe there is a library um, and so I got Arcus to be like well well um I I, I haven't seen one but uh, I I'd very much very much like to to there to be a library uh, um. It's so good to meet a fellow scholar. Yeah, and then they found a library. They found a library, and the, the, the library puzzle was really, really circuitous. I will admit that now. Uh, what you had to do is you, you found two rows of books, like two shelves of books, with different coloured books on them, and you made you, you pushed books out of the front shelf in order to make a door shape in the negative space with mm-hmm. like the, the lighter brown books behind, and then you went and got a book with a gold... Um, volume number yeah, uh, mm-hmm. and put it in like one of the shelves in order to act as a door handle then you went up the ladder on the opposite bookshelf and, would and opened open. the door it was honestly it was really really good that you thought of that on the fly hmm. okay so, yeah, but that, that, that's, that's fair but um, I feel like Arcris could probably have given you a little bit more help with that one but uh, Calvestri distracted Arcris because yeah, Maxi wanted uh, Arcris to be sort of kind of involved in what Clovestri was trying to do in this library. And the library is like where they find like the really disturbing thing where like the the books towards the the uh, beginning of the library are just like random gibberish. And then towards the end of the library, it's like they use really simple sentence constructions, but these are like words, understandable words in common describing actual things. Uh, and so it's, it's worrying because it's like they're learning uh, that sort of thing. And then Finally, they get into the penultimate room, and the penultimate room is a theatre. Mm-hmm. It has it's a, it's a round room, and it has those those stepped, um, like, you know, well, you know what the inside of a theatre looks like when it's just got benches, right? Yeah. That's what it looks like. And the, the middle of the room is dark, and so they, they, they go down the steps, and when they get to the middle of the room, uh, a light turns on, and they find out it's not a, it's not a musical theatre, and it's not a... a um, it's not a theatre for, for actors in a round. Yeah, no, no playwrights no, there. Uh, it's it's a Victorian surgical theatre, and there is a chair, like a, a sort of like a dentist's chair, in the middle. And on this chair is the, I believe the phrase that I used was surgically eviscerated yes. uh, body of Arcus Vath. And uh, this this is the point because uh, they they'd worked this out before. You, you were quite clever. Uh, before they'd worked out, okay, we need a code word to like prove that we're us. And Arcris was like, that won't work because I think these monsters can read minds. So, um, but they can only copy what they can see. So if we hide an object on our person, we can like pull the object out to show those. And they used pitons, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, because that was a thing that August happened to have. And so they're like, Arcris, do you have your piton? And and Arcris like basically pulls the piton out. And uh, he's like, you know, the piton only works if I was the real Arcus Vath when you gave it to me. Uh, and so, like, a boss fight begins where, where Arcus where Vath reveals that the real Arcus Vath has been dead basically since these guys arrived. And all of a sudden became the most sinister heel I have oh, ever seen oh. in my life. I was really surprised 
that, uh, that, that all of you guys were really enthusiastic for him as a villain. Like, like bad Arcarus was just as over as good Arcarus in yeah. like an entirely different direction. Because uh, he, what was his 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 line that Nile complimented me about? All right, so so um, he was like, uh, I'm trying to see if I can do his, his line. He he was like, uh, I feel uh, I'm really sorry that uh, I didn't tidy up. Like like you know when he's talking about um, Arcarus's like body. He's like, but once I heard that you were coming, I just had to rush out. Uh, and then he, he talks about how basically he, he um, tortured and interrogated the real Arcarus in order to like learn all his mannerisms perfectly and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And then he talks about how he actually feels really bad about the whole thing because halfway through the interrogation, Arcarus ta- taught him about like the guilt of imposing on people. And then suddenly like not Arcarus is like, Oh my god! Because he he basically had to rip the language of common from the real Arcus's mind before he could start interrogating him, and he's been like, you know, just just torturing him for hours, and he's like, man, this is really impolite. I, yeah. I feel really bad about this. Um, and I I think like yeah, to, to, toward uh, when the fight's about to start, he's like, uh, oh, poor poor Arcus taught us a lot, but uh, evidently there's still much to learn. Uh, and we can learn that from you. Although, we already know about screaming, so you don't have to start with that. And uh, then two other doppelgangers like come out of the, out of the shadows. I, I honestly loved that line the most, and if, if you weren't going to say it, I was mm. going to poke you <laughs> to make you say it, because, oh, the screaming part, that, that's, that was genius. I, I actually thought of that line pretty early on, and like I spent a few minutes walking to the, the, the SU like trying to be like... How does that work best, basically, <laughs> uh, as, a, as a villain line? Um, but here, I think, is where we, we drop the hammer, because all the way through this boss fight, on either his turn or hers, uh, Arcarus, well, I suppose not Arcarus at this point, because the real Arcarus is also present, it's just that his face is contorted into an eternal scream, and he's been cut from sternum to... Breastbone. The breastbone, I guess, and his organs are all in jars, except some of them which are missing, which is worrying. And he's, like, strapped to this tail. Yeah, he's very dead. Um, so I guess not Arcarus is uh, prancing about, and uh, not Arcarus's angle, basically, for taunting the party is he's like, uh, I knew that I could infiltrate you, because one of our own has been in your midst this whole time, and you never even noticed. And like August and uh, and Grabthar are like, what the fuck's he talking about? Um, and then uh, Arcus starts addressing Colvestra like directly, uh, and he's like, "Why do you deny your birthright, child?" <laughs> and it's at this point I'm going to talk about Colvestra's secret. Colvestra is not a doppelganger, yet. but yet. But is the, uh, if you look in the monster manual, you see that, uh, some doppelgangers, um, like to, uh, exclusively, um. Well, it's just that they're, they're too hedonistic to raise their own young, right? So yeah, they're, they're like so they lie with human women. And their young, when their young re- will, will be human up until they reach a certain point of maturity. Or elves or dwarves or whatever yeah. the, the original mother was. Uh, upon upon which they will uh, become what their father 
was. And uh, th- this also pertains to not not just them them losing their form, but also like their original mindset and their emotions. And they whatnot. become doppelgangers. Basically. Yeah, they, they this, just... this is how new doppelgangers are made in the material plane. Yeah. And um, cool. so, like the way I ruled this was like most of the change is uh, like mindset related. So I think the way that we ruled it with Colvestra was because Colvestra like believes that the the majority of the changes will happen on her 18th birthday. In theory, they would because like it would it would be her 18th birthday, and she'd be like, "Oh no, I'm out of time," and then she would like complete her transformation. Yeah. But coming up to that point, yeah. Like, She's been, like, um, her skin has been getting, like, mottled and more pallid, and her eyes have been, like, more sunken and yellowing. So I I made this character in, like, October, and I thought it would be a really interesting reason for a character to quest uh, to figure out a way to save themselves from becoming uh, a doppelganger. Because Calvestra does not want to embrace her heritage at all, does she? No, she she wants to be human. She's really afraid of the idea of becoming like uh, a, one of these horrible monsters. Uh, deeply, deeply afraid about it. And, and in fact, that was what she wanted Arcus's help with in the library. She wanted to know if the, the doppelgangers had written any in-depth literature about uh, the production of new doppelgangers using mortal uh, women as a vector. And whether or not there was any way uh, the subsequent offspring could uh, their change could be stopped or their time frozen in some in some capacity or just if there was a way to retain uh, her humanity at all. And unfortunately, she, she wasn't able to find a book. So um, well, when this fight started, uh, Alex and me had... Uh, very intense back and forth as him as the not Arthurus and I as uh, Colvestra. To be main- honest, like if if you hadn't described Colvestra and what motivated her like as much as you did to me before the game, I probably would have been a little concerned given like how much you threw yourself into like the genuine distress she was experiencing and mm. how much I was pressing that with Arthurus with just making him get crueler and crueler. Yeah, because like he was, he was really pushing her. Because uh, um... like when one of his uh, hench doppelgangers, if you like, uh, fell, he he was kind of like, oh, now, um, now it it's like the uh, the the odds are even because who knows whose side she's on? You know, she's she's the wild card. Uh, maybe she fights for you, or uh, or maybe she's gonna betray you and fight for me. And uh, Corvestra was uh, very intently yelling at Arcarus that I I am human and nothing you say is going to change that. And Arcarus was just very mocking of that. Yeah, like like Arcarus, like when he's revealed to be a doppelganger, like completely changes. Um, he gets all his doppelganger stats back. Like he'd been a commoner up until that point. I'm I'm actually amazed um, that when he fought other doppelgangers, he made as good roles as he did. Um, which was really helpful because it disguised the fact that the other doppelgangers secretly were not actually doing any damage to him because like they were part of the long con as well. Um, but the fight continues. Um, I think uh, Calvestra like mass heals everybody once. Yeah, she uh, does a prayer of healing and mm. uh, very effective. Um, and then everybody gangs up on, on Not Arcarus and uh, they finally strike him down and, and Not Arcarus looks into Grandpa's face uh, as he's like turning into the black goop that the doppelgangers have been shown to be reduced to, and he's like, "Just you wait." 
she'll take your face one day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then he's gone. And after the fight, I, um, I, I did a roll to see how Calvestra is, and um, she, I, I, I RP'd it that she just burst into tears. Oh, she just. But like um, the exit, the exit to the room appears, and like Grabthar, who apparently I guess is just not mentioning it or doesn't consider it important, because because he saw and he heard, like like the cat is out of the bag. He, he did do a check though during the. He did a fight. check during the fight, and then he completely ignored it afterwards. So I, I think like that was his his way of being like, no, it's cool, don't worry, come on, let's go. Uh, and he's like halfway to the the door, and like August is like, hey. You, you can't just do that. She's not okay. But, like, they didn't really talk very much about it at all. They were just like, it, it's fine. Um, I remember that August put his hand on Colvestra's shoulder and he said, it's a story for another time, and motioned for her to follow them. So the, he they were a very accepting group. Yeah, I, I think that they were just like, well, uh, that's probably as much of a final test as she could have had, you know? Hmm. She was forcibly outed by this... Uh, very accomplished and in terms of like being able to, to fully replicate somebody almost complete doppelganger and uh she chose to fight him and, and kill him and heal us rather than join his side so mm-hmm. she's probably the closest that we have to like a trustworthy person on this side uh so the, then they go through to the final room and the final room is the confrontation with the ever false king so they they go in and they find there's a big wide mirror on top of a plinth so they walk up the plinth and they look in the mirror and they see their reflections. And August sees his reflection uh, break out into into pustules and, and, and you know boils horrible and... boils and like his his clothes get get ratty and he's surrounded by flies and stuff and uh, he, he looks horrible like one eye swells shut like uh, you know a, a giant balloon of pus and it's, it's horrible and Grabthar sees himself, like, turn into one of the, like, uh, surrealist horrors that he's been fighting all the way through. And uh, and then Calvestra sees herself, and then her reflection, like, grins and reaches up and just, like, grabs a clump of her hair and just starts pulling. Uh, and, like, she watches her, her own skin, like, just split and uh, slough. I believe slough is the verb? Uh, off. Uh, and there's this 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 bold uh, yellow-eyed grey creature underneath. And then you all had to make a wisdom save. Yeah, final wisdom save. Grabthar didn't make his. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone else was like, no, no, I won't fall for your tricks anymore. Yeah, and, and Kovasta was just like, I know I've got more time. There's there's no way I'm letting this happen. Um, and it turns out that the mirror. Uh, is actually the the, uh, the the great old one, the ever-false king. And rather than engaging him in combat, which they would almost certainly lose, the, they convinced the ever-false king to, to let them go by engaging uh, in a contest of creation. Yes. With him. They gained the power to, like, you know, create sculpture out of, of like, raw material, and they're given some, and then they are uh, tasked with beating him in this contest. And uh, if you are at all a fan of the works of Garth Nix and you have read Grim Tuesday, uh, you know what the uh, what the trick is here, because the Ever False King is the creator of the doppelgangers, and his Mansion of Mirrors is like bad copies of things that he's seen in the material plane. Like the 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 way that it's judged is the Ever False King 
can't make original things. He has to copy things that he's seen. So he makes like a really, really good uh, painting that he's seen of the uh, the emperor of of elves. And then August made a a, a, a fruit bas- basket. A fruit basket. And uh, Grabthar made a a sword with a with like lettering on it. Uh, didn't he put the story of the hungry caterpillar yeah, it was on it? Yeah, a very hungry yes. caterpillar, which was a weird thing to inscribe on it, but you know. And then, uh, what did Colvestra make? Well, I felt that Colvestra would make something that um, would be a testament to what she believes it makes a human a human. So she decided to take one of her, her own memories, the memory of re- remembering a bard once playing music in front of people. So she made a sculpture of, a, of this bard with his musical instrument and the people gathered around it. And then she conceptualized the music as colors and uh, an embroiled story around him and around the, the heads of people. And upon the each person it touched, uh, it, it evoked new color and to represent new emotions that were being felt. And um, I, I just felt like that was something that Colvestra would probably create to just show what humanity is. And indeed, the uh, the doppelganger judge that the uh, the king had brought in and instructed very, uh, very, uh, very sternly to be completely impartial because this should be a fair contest because he's an evil cosmic horror of his word, uh, decided... I'm sorry, I that... just like the idea of this doppelganger coming in and just, like, sitting out and judging the art, like... Like, whatever you're imagining, that is probably what happened. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> you just, like, stared at the, the art pieces and then, like, shook its head or nodded its head. And it chose Colvestri's, uh, like, contribution because of how original it was. And so, defeated, the, uh, the, the, the Everfalls King is like, well, there's no harm, really, in, in letting two mortals, uh, go from my domain. And, uh, this misguided child will no doubt be back at some point. No, she'll she'll come round. Let kids be kids. Yeah. Um, so he allowed them to to go back, and they they uh, went through a mirror that came out to the reflective surface of the fountain in the middle of uh, of Ver- of Varash's capital's town square, and that was the end of the scenario. So I, I think the only thing that was not resolved at the end is that there are like two got doppelgangers <laughs> wearing uh, Grabthar and and August's faces just walking around somewhere. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but not Colvestra's because that was the bit that we we hid was that her her way of entering the mirror was different. She just she just found that she could step through the mirror during this this thunderstorm. Yeah, um, I I Allison looking last it. Yeah, actually the idea of like Grabthar going home and there's another Grabthar like <laughs> in a sandwich or something, and then Grabthar has to take yet more psychic damage. I, I believe that the way the way that it was ruled was that if he was expecting the weird thing, he got advantage on the roll. So that's probably how I would have ruled it then. Like he yeah. would come in and he'd be like, "I knew that there was going to be another me, so I get advantage on this roll that I'm still probably going to fail." Yes. <laughs> his his combat rolls did really really well, but his wisdom rolls they were, were not just... great. Like, like his wisdom bonus, as far as I know, was not great. Mm. But also, he just rolled really badly. Like, Rex was not rolling well for those for those checks. So, um, 
what, those, what? I guess, are the, the, the three games that we... Well, I say three games. We played a lot of stuff on the, the QCon weekend. But yeah. those are the games that we wanted to talk about on the post-QCon report. Mm-hmm. So, guys, what have you learned this QCon? What have we learned this QCon? I've learned, I think, and I, 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 I feel that I, I am entitled to say that I've learned it this QCon. Because although I did get a feeling like this last QCon, uh, I wasn't truly able to identify what it was. Um, I really, really like introducing people to new things that they can get excited and enthusiastic about and have fun. Yeah. And I love how, like, QCon lets me do that. I've also learned that it's okay if I can't exceed what I've done before every time, as long as I try and keep uh, the quality of what I've done up. Because I found it was it was a lot, like, nicer when I stopped trying to be like, what can I do that tops what I did last year? And just be like, what can I do that's interesting? Mm. Like, it doesn't have to be as good as last year's, so long as it's still got that mark of, of what I like to bring to QCon. And, and what, like, I, I, I've generally got very positive feedback from um, Ali, who runs, uh, well, who I don't know if she will continue to run RPGs at QCon. Um, I feel possibly Rex is, is going to take over from that, or somebody else. I don't know quite how the relationship between the people who run Coupon and the people who normally run Dragon Slayers works, but mm. uh, Ali was running it this year, and 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 she was really enthusiastic about people bringing weird stuff to Coupon, and I was like, no, I, I love doing that, and I will I will always try and bring like some sort of strange experiment to to Coupon if I can. Um, no, I I really really enjoy doing that, and I think this is the first year where I've pinned down that that's that's actually what makes me so happy uh, about about that experience mm. definitely um i guess i've also learned that i have no idea what it is that i put into characters that uh, makes them uh go over as i believe the wrestlemans say um because that is what they say because i i, I wanted arcus to be sympathetic but uh but i have no idea like why compared to other similar characters that i have i've made he was so sympathetic uh, in the eyes of like all of, of, of the, the people playing. And why, even when he turned out to be a horrible monster, that horrible monster was, in a completely different way, considered a great villain by those same people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I just have to keep trying, and I will figure it out one day, probably. Mm-hmm. What about you, Maxie? What did you learn this coupon? I learned that I have to... Uh queue up an hour beforehand if I want to get into any of your games. Yeah, yeah, they, they <laughs> filled up really quickly. Like, like I, I, a couple of people actually told me that, that, that my games filled up very, very quickly, which, which made me very proud, but also very concerned because I, mm. like, I like people who are, you know, unsure a bit to, to like, be able to come and play in my games. And it kind of seemed like they were, they were just very popular. Yeah. Oh, actually, another thing that I've learned, and I forgot <laughs> to mention this while, while I was talking about my games. So, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned these on the podcast before, but a, a company called Gale Force 9 um, makes a, uh, a set of spell cards. Uh, uh, they, yes. they, this, is, this is an official Wizard of the Coast tie-in product. Like, mm-hmm. Gale Force 9 are not a Wizards company, but they have the official license to do this. Um, the cards uh, are, are not perfect, but what they are essentially is they are all of the spells from a given spell list. And, like... You look through the cards and it'll be like, there's a card for, say, on the Clerics, you've got a card for Aid and a card for uh, Cure Like Wounds. Like, every single spell that is on, like, any of the spell uh, Cleric spell lists, I believe it's a separate one for, like, Domain spells. Mm. Um, there are quite a lot of different decks. So there's, like, 
Um, there's even some for like uh, things that aren't spells, but which are like special abilities. Like I believe there's a set for the uh, fighter battle masters special abilities, which will like come as like little uh, things. Anyway, point I'm making is for events like QCon, those are great. They're fantastic because uh, when uh, I would run games at QCon before, I'd be like. I can only really have one spellcaster, or maybe two, provided I get them to sit next to each other, because I can't guarantee that everybody is going to have their own book, and, like, people have to pick spells out of the book. The spell cards are so good, because you're just like, okay, you guys, here, here is a stack of spell cards for this class, go through, um, I've taken out the ones that are not uh, too high level for, for your character ever to have, just pick the spells you want, um, I've already explain to you the rules of how you pick spells, and then just have those on hand as a reference. And uh, I also found that printing off photocopies of like the relevant uh, pages of the PHB was also really, really helpful, just because the more resources that you provide, like where it's relevant resources, so like not even um, providing like insurance against people not having their own like books, but if you're just like, here is the page that is relevant to what you're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you put that in. And that's really, really helpful. Um, so, as I said, I don't know, like, how similar things that you might want to go to in, in your area are to the experience that we have at QCon. But I think definitely, if you're unsure whether, like, you might have some people playing in your games who have never played an RPG before and who don't have the material and are confused about stuff... Um, Spell cards and photocopies are the relevant parts of the PHB. Um, who for, for like you know the the table of um, progression, for instance. Yeah. That kind of thing. Those are really really good resources, and I very much recommend them for this kind of thing. So yeah, that that, that was the bit I forgot. I I meant to say something about that when I was talking about my uh, my my game, but uh, that's a practical thing that I learned. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have uh, some myself, and they are incredibly useful. They're really really useful, definitely. Like. I, I got them, like, a while ago, and they were reasonably useful for, like, quick reference when we were, like, doing our game. Like, when I play Azrael, I try and have all of the spells that I have. I, I also have the monk ones for Karslin. Mm, yeah, and I'm like, these are, these are reasonably good. It means I don't have to, like, look through my, my raggedy PHP with pages falling out every single time. Uh, but I don't know if they were worth the, the money I paid for them. And then I took them to QCon, and I was like, these are amazing. Because now I can have so many spellcasters in my... Pre-gens if I want. I can make like pre-gens for the, the 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 druid and the sorcerer and the warlock who previously were way too complicated ever to do that. And now I can. It's so good. Like the full spectrum is available now because you've got these these aids for people and I mean, it's just just good. Well, I also learned that I probably should not leave making pre-gens until the last minute. And I feel like you learned that as well, Maxi, because yeah. I heard I a little birdie told me Oh god! That, uh, that you were you know, like last minute, you didn't quite get your pre-gens all done, and some people had to fill in like the last bits themselves. Uh, I know um, it was the. And you judged me for liking coleslaw. Shocking. That doesn't have anything to do with this. You're still an abomination for liking coleslaw. No, you are. No. It's lovely with I... chips and. <laughs> I, I only didn't get the uh, the cleric and the druid complete. Um, I I started them. I bought their hit points up. Uh, I did the ability score modifier because it was level six campaign. Um, but I, I I just didn't write down all the uh, equipment. But I put all the spells in. I put all the spells that they uh, would uh, would use, but just not the um, 
uh, equipment that they might want and what each of the, like, what they could do at level two or level four that was just handy to have on. So I just said to them, Luke, uh, instead of just looking in the sidebar, um, just go through the player's handbook. It's yeah. on the table for you. You want as much game time as you as you can get in this kind of event. So preparation time is very important. And coleslaw is still a garbage food for garbage people. No, it's not. It's tasty with chips. You know what? It goes great with pulled pork as well. You put it in a pulled pork sandwich. It is delicious. Okay. I had it with steak last night. Also very nice. Pulled, pulled pork is not unpleasant, but it is weird. It is. Like, but... like it, is, it is a weirdly textured food. <laughs> it is. That's true. But do you know what makes it better? Putting even more weird textures in there. You have two people sitting next to each other who are completely unconvinced right, about there, this. There must be someone here who likes coleslaw in the comments. If, if you, you like, like coleslaw <laughs> and you are willing to, to defend its honour, then uh, please write to us at probably nobody gives a shit because this episode is already two and a quarter hours long at time of recording. <laughs> uh, Belfast. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I, I think I think that's us. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. we've been House of Bards. We have been House of Bards. Uh, I have the been music Alex. was by Kevin McLeod. Okay, this this person that we're talking to doesn't actually exist. You're having a hallucination. <laughs> it's just me and Maxie sitting in front of of, of a microphone here. Yeah. We're actually talking to the the Skype test robot. We're trying to figure out whether whether our, our, our help, our, you know, our collective. Yeah, yeah, of, it, it, of it's been. It's just been a great conversation between you and me and no one else. Yeah, I've been That's Beth. A lie. Yeah, this this this, <laughs> this is Beth. Beth. <laughs> and and our, our our lovely guest this episode has been Maxie. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for having me on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any any uh, future time. That we we need a, a, a an enthusiastic guest such as yourself. I thought you did very well. Uh, we might ask you to come on again. Obviously, you're not always in the same physical space as me, so there are times that it might be you know a little harder. Yeah. But uh, but definitely you know, I I would say that this is probably not the last you have heard of Maxi on the podcast. Um. Yeah. So uh, you can find you can find us on on various the, the social medias. We should do that. Yeah. So uh, I am uh, Cleaver Crumish. It's spelt in the description oh. on uh, Twitter, Tumblr, and on Twitch as well. Yeah, I'm Baroness Banff on Twitter, Tumblr, and Twitch. Yeah, the three uh, Ts. Yes, uh, but both of us stream pretty regularly. Uh, I was not able to get a Sunday stream out uh, on the weekend of QCon because I was exhausted. Turns out doing you know four games with all the appropriate preparation is actually actually kind of hard, although. As I've said to other people, I do wish that I'd done a fifth one because then on my reward rewards sheet for you know helping the staff with their job, it said that I could have been eligible for a free QCon T-shirt subject to availability, and uh, you know that that would have been nice to to get. Although I was still allowed into the uh, the the post QCon like staff kind of of uh, restaurant thingy without wearing such a T-shirt, so it seems like we got away with it. That's true, but we were allowed to be there, which apparently some people were not. In any case, um, yes, we, we, we stream re- regularly. I stream on Thursdays and Sundays. Mm-hmm. And I stream on Fridays and Saturdays. And I watch <laughs> both of these streams. Yes, so uh, yes, while you probably returns can't see Maxie's face on a stream, 
You mm -hmm. can probably uh, interact with her in one of our chats if you come and watch one of our streams. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, but Beth, you, you are currently playing a popular alt otome game, Puzzle Cat, aren't you? Yeah, uh, I actually really enjoyed it. It's probably one of the better ones in this weird niche genre <laughs> there is. Uh, mm. Yeah. Whereas I am not quite sure what I'm playing. I think I'm going to continue playing uh, uh, Return to Castle Wolfenstein on Thursdays because I really love that game and it scrubs up pretty well when you give it some graphics mods. But as for some days, maybe I'll carry on playing uh, Black Mirror, the uh, voice actor who has never seen human beings interact <laughs> with each other simulator. <laughs> uh, or maybe I'll play something else, who knows. In any case, it'll be a, uh, out of date as a, as a prediction by the time this episode goes up, because even though there's not a lot of editing uh, to do, I still haven't edited the previous one. Very well, then. Um, so that has been us. The, uh, that has been House of Bards. Um, I have no idea what the background image behind the text is, so look in the description for a credit for that. I promise it will not be something as horrifying as the image that we used for the episode about Mary Sue's. I'm oh, sorry for inflicting that on... No, it won't. <laughs>